Good morning and welcome to Music 316 for Monday, December, oh, what is it today? The 7th. 7th of December and the beginning of the last week of class. We were talking about the caste system in South Asia. This group of four is called the four varna, or colors. It's a theoretical way of simplifying the caste system that was invented by Indian writers many centuries ago. Because the caste system actually includes hundreds, perhaps thousands of different groups. Because if you think of category number three, for instance, the ordinary people or common people, just think how many different kinds of ordinary people you might have. Um, farmers and herdsmen, businessmen, uh, metal workers, woodcutters, oil pressers, cloth weavers, people who tailor clothes, people who do all kinds of different jobs, belong to many different occupational groups. But altogether, they occupy one big strand in the caste hierarchy, that is, they are in the number three slot above the lowest class people and below the priests, the rulers, and the military officers. So this is a sim simple way to think of the caste system. What is caste? Caste is a system of hereditary. You don't know what hereditary means? It means what you're born with, what you inherit. Hereditary rights and obligations. That means that you were born into a social system with a place that is already made for you by who you're born as, that is, who your parents were, and what their occupation was, because caste usually implies a certain kind of occupation, a certain level of purity in a religious sense, a certain status, whether high or low, or middle, a certain degree of power, a certain degree of wealth. But those are kind of flexible, depending on your exact place within the system. And at the core of the system is really these rights and obligations that you were born with. <coughs> now, I'll tell you how that works. For instance, say that you are born into this group of ordinary people, what we, what we would call middle class in America. This is in between the lowest and the highest. You are neither so highly ranked as these people up here, nor are you so low as these people down here. Say your father, because it depends primarily on the father, which group you're born into. Say your father is a, um, um, a jeweler, and he works with um, making jewelry of one kind or another. That's a nice middle occupation. Well, suppose then that your father and mother are, are expecting a child, and they have a child that is born. Well, they can call on 
a doctor. And the doctor might be somebody in this caste group. It might even be somebody in this caste group, depending on the kind of doctor and then who, who it is. But they have a right to call for a doctor to come and help or for a midwife to come and help with the childbirth. If somebody gets sick, let's say, then they have a right to call on a doctor. Now, your family has a family doctor that they didn't choose as their family doctor, but that doctor was born in a family that had the obligation to serve your family. If somebody in your family got sick, if they needed help from, from a doctor, that doctor has an obligation to your family. It's your family doctor in a very um, fundamental sense of the term because he can't say no to your family if somebody needs a doctor. You have the right to services from that doctor. What does the doctor get out of it? Suppose the doctor's, do doctor's daughter is getting married and he um, wants to give her a nice piece of jewelry. Well, you are his family jeweler and he has the right to call on your family to make jewelry for his, for his family. And so you do that. When you get buried, when you die and get buried, you have the right to call on people from this group to come and bathe the corpse. Handling dead people is something for low caste people to do and to um, take, take care of that. And you have the right to call on a priest to pray for your dead family member at the cremation ceremony. And both of these, the, grave, the, 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 the corpse handler and the priest have a right or have an obligation to give their services to your family when you need them. And if they need jewelry, then you have the obligation to make jewelry for them, etc. Suppose you're a barber or a haircutter. That's down here pretty low in the hierarchy. There are people in these other groups that have a right to call on you for haircuts, and you have the obligation to cut their hair. But then um, you also have the right to call on them for whatever services they need that are appropriate to your caste level. So that means, in a way, that nobody gets left out of the social system. You always have somebody to go to because there is always somebody in the system with the services that you need who has a hereditary obligation to give those services or goods or whatever to provide them to your family when, when they need them. And likewise, you have the obligation to deliver goods or services to the people who um, have the right to call on your family for those goods or services. A long time ago, Indian writers symbolized this system in the legend of Manu, or the first man, the man that God created with the Brahmin priests as the head, <coughs> the Kshatriya, the kings, and the army officers as the arms, the common people 
as the body and the serfs and slaves as the legs and feet. This is possibly the first example of an organic model of society because it cites the nature of human societies as being like a living organism which has these different parts with different functions that obviously exist in a hierarchy. I mean, would you trade your head for an extra foot? Probably not, because feet aren't that important. We tend not to take as good care of our feet, or at least probably most, most of us don't. But still, you need your feet to get around. You need your body to do all kinds of stuff. You need your arms to do all kinds of stuff. You need your head to do all kinds of stuff. You as an organism don't survive, or you don't survive very well without all of these parts working together. And yes, you can get along without some of them, but you will be impaired and dysfunctional to that extent. It will be a very difficult thing. So the organic model of the caste system accounts for diversity of occupation, power, status, and wealth within a society by positing the mutual interdependence of all parts of society upon all other parts. Now, who do you suppose made up this theory? It wasn't these guys. It was the ones up toward the top of the hierarchy. Just like, I suppose, in <coughs> Chinese society when they created the model of the society as being like a great family with the emperor as the father. This is a creation, of course, of the <coughs> upper classes in Chinese society. And just as in any hierarchical model of society, you get the most agreement by people at the top of the hierarchy and the most disagreement and dissension by people at the bottom of the hierarchy because they're the ones that are getting treated like feet and stepped upon and being made to carry the load for everybody else in the society. So despite the rather um, rosy-eyed view of the social organism that is present in this model, there was a lot of suffering, a lot of, of um, discrimination um, in traditional South, a South Asian societies because of the inequalities of people in the lower part of the system. Because there wasn't a presumption of social mobility. You could not move up the ladder in the caste system because it's a hereditary system. It's determined by birth. And to question the order of birth, of course, would be to question the legitimacy of the whole system. So if anything, remember the prince who made the drumheads out of silk so that he wouldn't have to touch skin drumheads, so he wouldn't be religiously polluted, so he wouldn't fall down to the bottom of the caste hierarchy. You could go down, but you couldn't go up within the caste system. Now, in actual practice, of course, there were ways that people manipulated and um, did manage to do a little bit of social climbing from one generation to another. But by and large, the system worked 
as advertised, with people holding steady at the same level from one generation to the next, to the next, and to the next. And sometimes the system was publicly enacted, as in the festival of the king of the gods in Nepal. The status of the king of the gods is mirrored in the status of the king on earth, as the ceremony begins in the royal palace of the king of Nepal, with a ceremony led by the Brahmin priests. <laughs> I have to pause that there a second. The Brahmin priests are the hereditary priests whose obligation it is to serve the king of Nepal. This, by the way, no longer exists because the kingship was abolished in this decade, in the 2000 AD. It lasted all the way through the 20, 20th century and was abolished in the 21st. But at this point, late in, the, late in the 20th century, these Brahmins were the, uh, the, the official priests of the kingdom. Uh, they were called the Raj Guru. I mean, the later, later of them here on the left was the Raj Guru, literally the king's teacher, or the king, in this case, the king's priest. And he was an official in the Nepal government, they were all officials in the Nepal government because at that point Nepal was constitutionally defined as a Hindu kingdom. And far from being a separation of church and state, there was a close integration of church and state. So these are the personal priests of the king. They are performing a Vedic fire sacrifice. Vedic refers to the four oldest texts of the Hindu religion that date from before 1000 BC, at least the oldest of them do. And the four books were available only to Brahmin priests. Other, other people could not read them. The Brahmin priests were trained to read them and to carry out the rituals prescribed in the four books. One of the rituals is the ritual of the king of the gods, which used to be performed all over India, but which by the 20th century was only performed in Nepal. And so this is the only place where you could see this ritual of the king, uh, king of the gods. But like other Vedic rituals, it features an elaborate fire that is built up with sticks that the Vedic books tell us have to consist of an exact number of sticks going east and west, another exact number of sticks going north and south, then another exact number on top of that, northeast and southwest, another one northwest and southeast, and so forth and so on. So you get a description of hundreds of little sticks and bigger sticks in some cases that have to be built exactly as prescribed. You have to put things on the fire with a wooden spoon that is carved by hand and is exactly a certain length by a certain width and it has to be made in this exact shape. You have to you put in grains of rice that are kept in a palm leaf dish. You have to put them in 
a, a, a vase of liquid that contains exactly so much. Other grains of rice in these offering bowls have to be added to the fire at particular time and in particular numbers and so forth and so on. It is a very, very complicated and um, difficult ritual that takes many years to learn how to perform exactly, but you have to perform it exactly. You have to get it right. Why? Because all of this represents a blueprint of the universe, of the different parts of the universe. And the only way that humans have a connection to what keeps the universe running correctly is through the gods with whom you communicate through ceremonies like this. And what you are doing here, basically, is like a game console where you have to emulate the flight piloting of an airplane, the driving of a car, or something like that. But in this case, with this elaborate setup, you are piloting the universe. It has to go together with all of its thousands of parts in exactly the right order, in exactly the right time and place. And if you get the model right, if you get the piloting right, then you can, you, then, then you can do the only thing that humans can do to keep the universe running properly, which is to impress the gods with your desire to keep it going properly. And therefore, the world will continue from one year to the next. But if you get it wrong, boy, watch out. Tell them that in Copenhagen <laughs> when they have their meeting this week. And see what answer they come up with. This is the answer that the Vedic priests, the Brahmin priests, have come up with. And that's what they're doing in this ceremony. Now, you hear them. Let's hear them well. The chief priest. The chief priest is chanting in Sanskrit from this Vedic text that he's holding in his hands. This is the pilot's manual for the universe. You've got to get that right. You have to get all the words right. You can't say, push the wheel of the airplane forward when you mean pull it back to make it rise up or otherwise it <coughs> crash into the ground. You can't say, take a left if the left is going to turn you into Mount Rainier instead of the right, which took you out over Fusion South. You've got to get those words right. There's a lot depending on it. And so these guys receive very special training in that language and how it sounds and how to recite it and how to sing it to be able to do this ritual right. Brahmins are highly qualified experts in what they do. And this is their part of the ceremony. They are doing what Brahmins do. They have the right and they have the obligation to pilot this model of the universe that the ritual controls every year, the ritual for the king of the gods of all people, and to get it right so that the universe keeps going. See, he's waiting with his offering. He's counting the grains there with his fingers, and he threw it in at the correct moment as he got to the new page. 
Gotta get the timing just right. Doesn't mean you can't take a quick nose picking break. How do the Brahmins actually communicate with the gods? Through the ritual, of course, which is a multimedia performance with all the lights and smells and different kinds of things that are intended to reach the senses of the gods. But most of all, through something called vach. <coughs> vach, spelled V-A-C, which literally means voice. And it's the voice with which they sing the words of the text. But that voice is something more than just a biological mechanism in people's throats. The voice that they use to communicate with the gods is the primal energy that keeps the universe running. <coughs> the universe would not continue to exist without voice, which is its elementary energy, the energy on which all other energies like light and heat are based. And it's because the Brahmins master the use of voice <coughs> and its power to coordinate with the gods and with the physical running of the universe that they are able to exercise the very important function that they've been entrusted with. Now in just a second we'll switch over to the next group of performers of this ritual and this is group number two in the list over there, the Kshatriya, the rulers, the government officials and the military officers because they also have a role to play in this ritual. They will in a moment take center, center stage when the Brahmins are finished with their part. Kshatriya warriors and rulers. Now, you can see the army uniforms on <coughs> some of these guys. You can see others are wearing suit jackets and coats. So obviously the uniforms are the um, soldiers and the suit coats are the government officials. Now what you're not seeing here, and this is kind of typical, you often don't see the role played by the ordinary people in the performance of a ritual. But actually the ordinary people came in before any of these higher class people came in because the ordinary people had to cut the flagpole for the king of the gods. And that's what this is. This log here is a tree that grew in the mountains outside of Kathmandu. 
And every year, there are people in the village in those mountains that have the hereditary right and obligation to cut down a tree to send to the palace at Kathmandu for the festival of the King of the Gods flagpole. And so that's what they did a couple of weeks before, was to cut down this tree. And they cut off the branches so that there was just the trunk left. And then they dragged the tree with ropes to the limits of their village territory, where ordinary people from the next village showed up who had the right and obligation to take it for the next stage of the way, and then on to the next village where people who had the right and obligation, etc., etc. And so, village by village, it traveled down from the mountains and across the Kathmandu Valley, and fin finally ended up in the city of Kathmandu, where ordinary people had the right and obligation to uh, bring it from the gates of the city to the king's palace. We don't get to see their work. We just get to see the results because now here is the tree in the courtyard of the king's palace about to become the flag flagpole of the king of the gods. And these soldiers and government officials are working on attaching some of, some of, the, <coughs> some of the ornaments that turn it into the flagpole. So here they're tying on some bamboo sticks with ropes. These are part of the flagpole. A lot of people just gathered around to watch. Big heavy ropes to help raise the flagpole. Okay, so that bumble, bundle of bamboo sticks there gets tied on near the top of the pole. A big grapefruit and a red flag and a bunch of leaves. And this is the actual flag of the King of the Gods, a plain red banner together with the grapefruit, the leaves and the bamboo sticks constituting the ornamental flagpole as described in the Vedic texts. And so the <coughs> soldiers in the uniform, the government officials in their suit coats, raise the flagpole as the shudras, the lower caste musicians, <coughs> play their flute and drum band. Whoa, let's go back there just a little bit. Shudra serfs or slaves because musicians are usually very low caste. This group is called the Guruju Paltan. Paltan is actually an English loan word. Anybody who can guess what English word that is? <coughs> Ever hear of a platoon? Okay. This is the, the guru, well, guru, you know, is the teacher, the platoon of the teacher, and the, the teacher is the Raj Guru, that is, the teacher of the king, who's the head Brahmin priest. So this group of musicians is, um, usually accompanies the chief Brahmin priest when he has to perform in a public ceremony. So you get the highest and the lowest kind of bound Together. Now it's interesting 
to find out how these guys got in that position. And for that, we have to flash back to the year 1768, when the, what, what is now Nepal was a group of three city-states in the Kathmandu Valley and a bunch of hill tribes in areas to the east and the west of the Kathmandu Valley. And in the mid-1760s, the chief of one of those hill tribes, his name was Brikavina Ryan Shah, but I won't write that down, uh, started to conquer the villages near his own village. He was out in um, western, <coughs> west central Nepal in a small village called Gorkha, and um, he um, started um, organizing war parties to go invade other villages. And he would conquer other villages, and he would get all of their men together and go conquer the next village, and so forth and so on. And soon he had a very large and growing army and was able to march into the city-states of, of the Kathmandu Valley, where there were cities with um, up to 100,000 or more people, compared with these little villages of a few hundred uh, to maybe a thousand or so people that, uh, that the invaders were coming from. But by their federation, by, the, by their joining together, the villages from the hills conquered the urban states in the Kathmandu Valley. Um, and the Prithvina Ryan Shah, the, um, the conqueror, um, used a divide and conquer policy where he would um, um, make war on one of the city-states and say, I'll leave you other guys alone if you don't interfere with my war on Patan, let's say. And everybody said, okay. And so he conquered Patan. And he said, well, I'll leave uh, you guys alone if you don't interfere with my war on Bhaktapur. Okay. So he conquered Bhaktapur. Um, he conquered one town called Kirtipur, where the people put up a really strong fight against him. And um, he was so impressed by their fighting skills that when they finally had to surrender to his overwhelming force, he got all of the men together and had them cut, had their lips and noses cut off. Except he gave them a test, and if they could play a musical instrument, he didn't cut off their lips and noses. So this may, this may be the only um, time that, music, that musicians ever got off easier than anyone else. So you might um, want to think about that if you're ever think, thinking of becoming a musician. It, it, it isn't all bad. Sometimes, sometimes musicians have it good. Well, that was, that was the enemy musicians. Prithvina Ryan Shah finally found it himself with only one city-state left to conquer, and that was Kathmandu. And Kathmandu was the biggest of the three city-states. It was populated by an ethnic group called Newar. Um, and Newars were famous for their cities, for their urban architecture, and for their festivals. People say that Newars have a festival at least once every three days. Sometimes it's more often than that. But their biggest festival of all was Indrajatra, the festival of the king of the gods. And Prithvina Ryan Shah marched his army up to the walls of Kathmandu. It was still a walled 
fortress city at that point, just in time for Indra Jatra in 1768. <coughs> and he has his army on all sides of the city, so nobody can get in or out. Eventually, he was going to starve them out. But that would mean a lot of people starving and dying. And if he invaded directly, of course, a lot of people would be killed in the fighting. What Prithvi Narayan Shah did, and this was very smart of him, was wait until Indrajatra started. Now, at Indrajatra, every year at the start of Indrajatra, these painters have the hereditary right and obligation to come to the palace and freshly repaint the, the face of the fierce god Bhairava, whose face in the form of a, a giant metal mask is mounted in the wall of the royal palace. And that is in preparation for a sub-ritual of Indrajatra called Bhairavjatra, where people come to worship this fierce god who is a protector of the kingdom. As soon as they've finished their job, that night, people come to worship the big image of Bhairava. There's the third eye at the top of his forehead. Here's one of his two main eyes. There's one of the human skulls in his crown, etc. They come to worship Bhairava. You see there's this huge crowd of people um, pressing around the face. And this is a very popular event because behind the metal mask inside a room in the palace, there are some other guys who are pouring barrels of distilled liquor into a giant funnel. And that funnel feeds into a metal tube that comes out through the mouth of Bhairav's face here. And all of these people are pushing forward to get under that tube and drink the liquor coming out of the mouth of the god. So you see this guy? There's the liquor flowing out right there. And everybody's trying to get down there under it and to um, drink some of it. And some people overstay their welcome. And that's why these ushers here have to keep pushing people away. Did they assume that it has like special powers or why is it so, why do they want to drink those? Um, distilled spirits are very popular in Newar society and yes, they are assumed to have some kind of power but they're, they're also um, enjoyed purely for their own sake, especially at festival time. Um, <laughs> Everybody brews up liquor and beer for, for the fest festival. It gets consumed in vast quantities and nowhere 
more so than at Indrajat for the Festival of King of the Gods. And so Prithvinarayan Shah had held his army outside the gates of Kathmandu until after the first night of visits to the Bhairav Mask, until after that is most of the men in the city were drunk. And then he sent the Guruju Gopaltan with their drums and flutes looking and sounding pretty, pretty much like American and European military bands at the same time, which were also fife and drum bands. He sent them marching right in through the main gate of the city, right up the main street of the city, playing their music up to the royal palace and all the hungover newars in the streets said, oh my God, there's the invading army and look, they must have already won because here's their band playing their victory music and nobody is fighting them. Well, I guess we better give up. And so they got this capital city and the royal palace without ever firing a shot. And in honor of that great military victory, King Prithvinarayan Shah proclaimed that here on forevermore, the descendants of the Guru Juga Paltan will always enjoy the right and the obligation to serve as the band of the Raj Guru, the chief Brahmin priest. They will always have a guaranteed living, a guaranteed income, and they will always be at every important function of state because of their great help in achieving victory and in being responsible um, in a crucial way for, um, for making possible the formation of the modern kingdom of Nepal, which then lasted from 1768 until the early 2000s when the kingdom was abolished and became a republic. So this band is a living museum of people who were frozen in time by government decree, always ordered to wear the same uniforms that they wore in 1768, always ordered to play the same <laughs> instruments and the same music that they played in 1768. This is music that was not supposed to change, that was supposed to remain the same for hundreds of years. Of course, everything does change in hundreds of years, and let me show you something that did change. Okay, now they're raising the flag. You see plenty of military uniforms, and you see the dark jackets of government officials. Many of these are high-ranking officials, Secretary of State, Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of the Army, Secretary of this, that, and the other thing. Many of the military people are generals. In fact, 
there's a big overbalance of officers and cabinet ministers as opposed to ordinary soldiers and workers, which means that there's a whole bunch of people running around giving orders, many of them contradicting each other. So some of them saying, put their pole there. No, put it over here. No, put it there, etc. And it's amazing that, there we go, that we'll get conflicting orders again. Up here, no down, up, 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 no down fairly, etc. And it's amazing that people don't get killed, at least usually didn't get killed in this ceremony. The military officers and government officials aren't supposed to be drinking during the ceremony, but of course some of them do. Oh, and there they go, up and up, and is it going to go? Well, no, over there, go over there. Now bring that around. Oh, don't pull here, don't pull that way. <clears throat> There's the grapefruit, the flag, and play. And the Guruji Gopaltan just shot off their flintlock muskets to encourage the flagpole lifters and the uh, thousand pigeons took off from the roofs of the temples. Look at all the people on the balconies over here on the roof and the step steps of the temple. There are thousands of people gathered around to watch this. And we've still got the conflicting orders and the um, dispute among the different people. Of course, this, it gets more and more dangerous the higher the pole goes. But somehow they get the whole thing together. Is it going into a big hole in the ground? Or? Yeah, they're going into a hole in the ground that's dug for this. And um, you'll see the, um, the ropes coming off the top of the pole there. Another um, volley of musket fire sends the, um, the pigeons flying again. And finally they get it up. And now that the pole is raised, you get a musical circumambulation of walking around the pole while playing music by three different bands. Here's the Guru Jugopaltam in their black and white uniforms. <coughs> behind them, <coughs> behind them, a small group of hill musicians. Behind them, the Royal Military Band playing their Turkish slash world music, John Philip Sousa marches. And they do actually play some by John Philip Sousa as part of their repertoire. But what's going on here now is that these three bands from three different eras using three different kinds of musical scales are playing the same music. They're playing the same 18th century music that the Guruji Gopaltan is playing on their flutes. So all of them are playing so out of tune with each other that you would hardly recognize this is the same music. But there's more to come, and we'll see what that is tomorrow.